0: Thanks for downloading Development Drums. My name is Owen Bader at the Centre for Global Development. My guest today is the economist and author Diane Coyle. She's vice chair of the BBC Trust and a visiting professor at the University of Manchester. We're going to be talking today about her latest book, The Economics of Enough, How to Run the Economy as if the Future Matters, which is now out in paperback. Diane, welcome to Development Drums.
1: Thank you for the invitation.
0: we're going to do this podcast in four parts. First, I want to understand a bit better your thoughts about uh, the desirability of economic growth and whether it's a satisfactory goal for economic and social policy. Then in the second part, we're going to look at the big challenges that you identify in the book, Um, environment, debt, inequality, the loss of trust and social capital, that kind of thing. In the third section, we're going to talk about why it seems so hard to respond to these challenges. And then in the last section, we're going to look at your manifesto for enough, your proposals for how we tackle some of these problems. When I first saw the title of your book, The Economics of Enough, I thought perhaps it was going to be another one of those books saying that we had to stop economic growth, that we were running out of environment or because of water or climate change or something that we were going to that we should um, be satisfied with what we have we should be satisfied with uh, with today's levels of income and I thought you were going to be connecting with this literature about whether there's any connection between economic growth and happiness so I was quite relieved reading your first chapter to find that that isn't what you're saying Um, perhaps you can explain uh, for the listeners what what you are saying about what should be the objective of social and economic policy
1: as your question hints there has been a bit of a bandwagon saying there's been too much growth enough to all that and let's measure or focus on what really counts instead and what really counts is is human happiness and uh, there are surveys that measure that so let's focus on those instead and I think that's Obviously silly, if you give it a moment's thought. We're in the, what is it now, the sixth year of not having any growth, and that is pretty obviously making people unhappy. Whenever you've got any improvements in productivity in an economy, the economy, the GDP, needs to grow by at least that much to keep... Gross domestic product. Gross domestic product. A measure
0: of national income.
1: So this measure of gross domestic product, national income, needs to grow by at least as much as productivity to keep the same number of people in jobs. If you don't have growth, you're going to get some unemployment. That's why people don't like recessions. So just reflecting on that should make people a little bit cautious about the happiness bandwagon. That, I think, rests on not understanding the statistics. If you ask people how happy they are, you're going to be asking them on um, a range, from, from 1 to 3 or from 1 to 10 conventionally, because there is no there's nothing objective out there to measure it's not like the temperature and so that's not going to change very much from year to year it's quite subjective and if you plot it over time it won't increase and what happened is that richard Easterlin in his famous paper on this subject that set off the whole happiness the happiness movement plotted that against the level of gdp gross domestic product that is an artificial construct about how big the economy is and it can rise without limit, and it does. And whenever you plot a series that doesn't increase against a series that does increase over time, they're going to look like they're not related to each other, but it's not meaningful, and it doesn't mean that they're not related. So that's
0: where we got this thing called the Easterlin Paradox. The I- Paradox. Which was the idea that as economies get richer, people in them don't get happier. And that gave rise to this movement that said, well, so we should stop yeah. focusing on economic growth. Most economists now agree with you that the statistics underlying these limb paradoxes are rubbish. And actually, it turns out, surprise, surprise, that as economies grow in the sense of GDP rising, people do in fact get happier. Um, but that doesn't mean that GDP is necessarily a very good or complete measure of what it is we're trying to achieve, does it?
1: GDP is, is what it is. It's a measure of domestic product or output of the economy. It's not, and it was never intended to be, a measure of welfare. And those two things need to be kept distinct. And we do have other ways of looking at at welfare. Uh, The Human Development Index is probably the best known of those. And that takes a range of things that are obviously important to people's well-being uh, like indicators of health or mortality, access to technology and, and um, clean water and so on, education levels. And so if you want to measure welfare, there's a perfectly good measure in the Human Development Index that, that does that. Or you can look at at those uh, separate components of it separately, and there's quite useful information in doing it that way. It might be quite useful to know that your health indicators are improving, but your environmental indicators are not improving because that helps you focus what kind of policy responses you'd you'd want
0: right so my colleague Charles Kenny has a book Getting Better which uh, has this interesting finding that in a lot of uh, the poorest countries in the world um, incomes measured as GDP per person haven't gone up very much um, in for example some parts of sub-Saharan Africa whereas there have been massive improvements in life expectancy reductions in infant mortality improvements in education access to clean water and things So there are obviously things that we care about or ought to care about which GDP doesn't necessarily measure.
1: Yes, and I think his finding um, points to what GDP leaves out that's important, which is is actually technological innovations. And it's a very poor measure of the new variety of things that that we can access and and the technological improvements. There's a a famous anecdote that David Landis used in his book, um, Wealth and Poverty of Nations, about Nathan Mayer Rothschild, who was massively the richest person of his day, and he died for want of an antibiotic that would cost a few dollars these days. Mm -hmm. And that sort of technological improvement that has a very direct bearing on people's well-being isn't measured well by GDP. But GDP does what it does, and it is quite strongly correlated with things that we do care about. The resolution of the Easterlin paradox is that if you try to relate statistically measured happiness through the surveys and growth in GDP, there's a pretty strong link between the two of them. Right. And growth in GDP is to some extent capturing the kinds of improvements in underlying welfare.
0: So are we saying, uh, there are two ways of interpreting this. One is uh, saying in practice people are going to care about incomes. That If you, um, if we stopped caring about income or, we, or GDP stopped growing, we would have a situation like we're in today with very slow economic growth or or recession and that makes people unhappy and that makes them uh, vote for a change of government it makes them politically desire change so as a matter of fact we're going to have to continue to pursue GDP growth or are you making a, a moral point a normative point that says we ought to pursue GDP growth because it does in fact contain within it not Not everything that matters, but a lot that matters to people. And we have a moral responsibility to pursue the things that make people happy.
1: I think the latter. I think we ought to pursue GDP growth. It's a very good single indicator to the kinds of things that we do care about. Um, There's nothing to stop us caring about GDP growth, pursuing it, and also separately looking at indicators of, of health, and particularly the distribution. GDP obviously doesn't look at the distribution of income and one country where the link between GDP growth and happiness is not so strong is actually the United States, the hypothesis being that that's because the benefits of GDP growth have been so unequally shared there that actually not many people have have benefited from it. But I would um, supplement looking at growth with a national balance sheet and looking at what the implications are for the nation's wealth in the broadest sense, of pursuing growth this year, because obviously GDP growth, it's its what happens from year to year, and you can improve that if you're eating your capital that ought to be right. benefiting future generations instead. So we very much need some kind of measure of, of wealth, but not just money and not just the national infrastructure, but also um, human capital and environmental capital, natural resources as well.
0: And... I mean, this is a common criticism of uh, this measure, which is that we we see rising consumption, but this is essentially at the expense of uh, particularly natural assets that we're using up the planet's ability to um, uh, to accommodate us. So that so that it's not, if you were to use a balance sheet approach, um, although it, you know, although we've got good consumption this year, we're Doing what uh, Harold Macmillan uh, said, we were selling the family silver to pay the butcher—that we're, we're 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 drawing down our assets, our environmental assets—is. Is, do you think that critique is fair? How how you know if we were doing a proper balance sheet approach, um, and what would our GDP if our GDP growth has been averaging two and a quarter percent a year or two and a half percent a year? What what would it have been properly measured? I mean, if we if we were taking proper account of, of the assets that we've been using up.
1: I don't know of anybody who's done that um, counterfactual calculation because the statistics behind it are quite complicated and the World Bank attempts to measure comprehensive wealth for some countries are are, are kind of moderately advanced and don't really answer the question that you're posing yet. Uh, I would have thought it's most acute in certain areas and energy use is an obvious one to look at. Any country with a natural resource base as the UK had with oil or um, other countries still do with oil and and minerals, then that's another obvious place to start, trying to make this balance sheet assessment as well as looking at GDP. And I think an interesting contrast in the developed world context would be the treatment of oil resources, natural gas resources by Britain and Norway. But then, of course, in lots of developing countries, this is is a, a pressing public policy question.
2: If you like development drums, you should also consider listening to the Global Prosperity Wantcast, a shorter, snappier podcast hosted by our colleague Lawrence MacDonald. You can find both Development Drums and the Global Prosperity Wantcast on iTunes or at the Centre for Global Development website. You may also be interested in the development podcasts of The Guardian or of the Overseas Development Institute.
0: My guest today is the economist Diane Coyle, and coming up next, we're going to be talking about what she has in her book as a crisis of capitalism. Diane, in your book, The Economics of Enough, you describe a series of challenges which you describe as a crisis of capitalism. You talk about the financial crisis, the crisis of public finance and debt, environmental degradation and climate change, inequality, and the erosion of trust and social capital. Now, many of our listeners will be familiar with these and probably quite gloomy about things like climate change, but I was struck reading it about, I mean, this term crisis of capitalism is is quite strong, and it's it's quite a gloomy set of chapters about the world that we confront today. Can can you say something? I'm going to ask you to start with this issue of, of public finances and debt, because I began reading the book quite gloomy about those, but ended up... Uh, much more pessimistic as a consequence of reading your book about it. So, can you tell us something about why why we should be concerned about about this in particular?
1: I suppose the starting point was the financial crisis, which was front of mind when I was writing the book, and um, even even now is quite an acute crisis, and obviously the response to the financial crisis directly in terms of bailing out the financial sector, but also the effect of the recession on on the government finances mean that um, the fiscal deficit and the build-up of national debt is is quite acute. And then in a, a number of countries there are large household debts as well because people had been borrowing to um, uh, get into the housing market and the housing boom. And that's what's front of mind. But as well as that, there's a sort of underlying iceberg of a problem with public debt. Part of it is that there was a lot of off-balance sheet financing that went on, not only in my own country, the UK, but in, in others as well. And that's surprisingly large. And then the really big issue is the structure of the welfare state and pension system that we have, given the changing demography of the population. And we set up... The welfare state for a country with a growing population whose average age wasn't getting older over time. And now we've got the reverse of that, a a stable at best or shrinking population and an ageing population as well. And I think a lot of people, if they think about it, assume that that means you've got to have enough money in your pension fund and make sure the pension is funded properly and, and then it'll be fine. And there has been a lot of debate about filling the deficits in pension funds. But the underlying economic point is that at any moment in time, the people who are not working are supported by the people who, who are working and generating national income. And you can't, you can't eat a, fut- a, a future financial flow There's a sort of economic fundamental that you can't get around, that there has to be enough being generated currently in the economy, enough food, enough products, enough services to sustain everybody who's living in it. In other words,
0: when we save, we don't save tins of beans that we're going to eat when we're old. We save money, and so we need an economy that can turn that money into tins of beans that we want to eat when we're old. And so there has to be enough economic activity going on. There have to be enough people producing those things for us when we're older for the money that we've saved to actually be valuable and useful to us. That's right.
1: That's right. Now of course um in a lot of countries these have been funded through the state sector through state pensions and the implications are that to carry on paying pensions and and paying for healthcare as well in the way that we have in the past 40 years over the next 40 years will require simply quite you know quite extraordinary increases. In, in levels of taxation, and I think politically absolutely unsupportable increases.
0: And the, in and the difficulty here is caused by the change in the structure of the population, is because there will be more old people, because we live longer um, after retirement, and because the baby boom is over and we don't have so many young people coming into the labour market. So the ratio of people working to people not working will move against...
1: Moving very, adverse, uh, very adversely.
0: But you, at the same time, won't those people who are working be fantastically productive? Won't they all be generating huge incomes because of productivity growth in the meantime? I mean, well, they,
1: they may be. And there are, different, um, there are different solutions to this. And this is a problem of unsustainability. Things that are unsustainable are not sustained. And you can either plan your way out of it or you can do a mix of things to, to, to work your way out of it. Or you you have a crisis at some stage. So it's it's not an overnight crisis. Metaphorical time bombs don't explode. But it's a slow burn one. One thing that could happen is that, as you're saying, there could be great improvements in productivity so that we don't need so many people working. And that's fine. We can all enjoy 25 years on the golf course after we retire at the same level of income that we've, we've been used to, retired people have been used to. Or people could work later. Or we could have more immigration to change the demographic structure of the population. Um, or in some countries there's uh, plenty of scope for women to come into the workforce because the employment rate of women is low, or you can make the labour market work better so there's less unemployment. There, uh, so it could be a mix of all of those things. Um, but they're all politically really hard to bring about. And if you look at examples acro- around continental Europe at the moment, where the because of the financial crisis, the public f- finances are in absolutely desperate crisis at the moment, they are even so finding it very hard to raise the pe- retirement age by two years or make the labour market work a little bit better so if the employment rate goes up by a little bit. So the politics of even small change in this area seems to be extremely difficult.
0: Your book suggests that we have in particular a, a public sector financial problem, that the, where, this, where this will manifest itself is in the obligations of the state. That through the welfare system, through pensions, uh, we uh, we will find ourselves having to bear costs that we're unable to bear at, a, at an appropriate level of tax. So this will this will manifest itself in the public finances. And on uh, one reading of what you are saying, you seem to be taking the George Osborne line that you know we we have to bring spending down. We need a, a prolonged period of austerity to rebalance the public finances. Now, I am not asking you about the kind of Keynesian macroeconomic question of is, is a good time to do that now as opposed to once the economy has begun to recover and and we're able to uh, take some demand out of the economy um, without damaging economic growth. But in the long term, are you taking the um, the kind of fiscal hawk view that we have a structural problem in the public finances that we have to do something about? Or are you saying that actually the problem is not in the public finances, it's, it's in the real economy, it's to do with productivity and immigration and working people's working lives and so on? What's, where are you on, on how far this is, a, this is essentially a problem of public finance?
1: Well, I think we have both problems. I think we have a problem about low productivity and a problem of public finances. So I am a long-term hawk about needing to address this structural problem. We went into the financial crisis in, in the UK and in a n- number of other developed countries as well with um, a, a public sector deficit that was a large proportion of GDP. And even if you're not somebody who believes in balanced budget over the cycle and you think it's OK to have a small budget deficit over time, we didn't have a small one, we had a big one over time. So I do think I am a hawk about the long-term public finances. and We ought to have um, an honest debate about the way we have financed health care and pensions entirely through the state. And if we want that to continue, then what level of taxation is needed to support it?
0: One of the themes of your book, and we'll, we'll come to this in a second in, in more detail, is the idea that we don't pay enough attention to the long term. But it seems to me that George Osborne's behaviour and the present government's behaviour is perhaps a counterexample. It seems to be a government that's doing something that's very politically unpopular, um, perhaps foolishly at a time of of, uh, of poor economic growth, of tackling some of these long term fiscal issues faced by the state, um, d- is it your view that that is a you know that this is indeed one of those rare counterexamples examples of someone looking after the long term, or that they're not looking after it enough, and that actually the, they're not they're not facing up to the challenges, or what? How does this fit with your narrative of we don't care enough about the long term?
1: Well, I don't know enough about. Um conservative debates to to know how much it's tactics and how much it's long-term. It, I mean, as you say, it does look like it's um, very focused on a particular view of what the long-term ought to be, namely a smaller government long-term. And there is a debate to be had about the short-term Keynesianism, I mean, by definition, if you increase government spending, you increase GDP, because there's a plus G in the definition, a plus government spending in the definition of, of, of GDP. So there's a, there's a short-term impact, and there is a debate to be had, and that's a very vigorous debate about whether or not that's needed to jumpstart the economy back into growth, because growth will really help you sort out the public finance, finance sustainability. And I don't know the answer to that. I'm not a, not a macroeconomist.
0: One of the one of the um, most interesting and I thought quite challenging parts of your book was a discussion about um, values and really the, the idea of social capital, which is one of these awful bits of jargon. But this notion that there are institutions and behaviours within society, often implicit, that the idea of trust, for example, which un- which which need to be there to underpin an effective society, an effective market, an effective an effective community and i i was reminded of george bush's call for a kinder gentler capitalism um and you seem to be but actually often in your book you're you're harking back to a kind of victorian era of of capitalism i was interested in what you think is going on there and why it matters
1: The Victorian era is very interesting because it was, like ours, a time of profound structural change in the economy because of the technologies and at the same time the sort of social upheavals that you see alongside any structural change of that kind. And there was um, obviously extreme poverty, very visible of, of a kind that hadn't been experienced before, and that brought forth this rather remarkable... Institutional or, uh, or moral, even, response and amazing acts of philanthropy, um, amazing acts of social innovation. And a lot of the institutions that we have relied on for post war capitalism were laid down in that Victorian era. And that's everything from um, museums and libraries to trade unions, mutual organisations, mutual assurance companies. And all of that social innovation was was one of the responses. But also the paternalism, I suppose, of Victorian capitalism. And, of course, there were bad industrial bosses, but a a cohesive group who thought that it was their responsibility for the whole of the society to um, benefit or at least not be degraded by by their activities. And I suppose... um, That's something that has evaporated in the years since around 1980. And although there were obviously some very useful things about the kind of Reagan and Thatcher revolution and the way that they tackled um, embedded institutional interests that were not serving the public interest and the way that it shook up rigidities in the economy and all of that turned out to be a good thing, um, at the same time it unleashed a sense of, well, a lack of responsibility that has, has grown um, unsustainable, unsustainable. And the financial markets make that absolutely clear, that the degree of um, practice of self-interest and greed in the financial markets has brought the most extraordinary economic catastrophe on us.
0: This part made me, kind of reminded me of Marx, right? This, this notion of capitalism containing the seeds of its own destruction. I mean, it, why wouldn't a market economy uh, faced with, for example, mutual societies where they could raise a bunch of money by demutualizing and flogging off the shares? Um, why wouldn't they do that? Why I, I, I was I, I was surprised that you were surprised that capitalism has eroded some of those institutions as as. Um, as markets become more competitive and, and firms have to um, do more to uh, survive um, don 't they have to eke out every way they can to maximize their profits and their shareholder value or face extinction i mean what what should What should be stopping them from doing that?
1: I think the problems have come about because markets have actually become less competitive and not more competitive, and it turns out that the floor has been um, mistaking. pro-business and pro-market policies and we've had pro-business policies and increasingly pro-big business policies and there has been a capture of politics by a wealthy increasingly wealthy economic elite and again that's probably clearest in banking but I think there are many sectors of the economy where you can see that the rules have over time increasingly been set to favour large incumbents and keep out keep out competition and in a competitive market, I would expect to see much more variety of um, corporate structures. I would expect to see more mutuals, or more worker cooperatives, or more social enterprises, and not the sort of monoculture capitalism that we have ended up with.
0: That's very interesting. So, I'm, uh, I mean, one one area where we've often talked about innovation happening, and in, particularly since the Big Bang in the 1980s here in the City of London. Um, it, it, we 've often talked about financial innovation, you know these incredibly dynamic markets, but I think what you 're saying if, if I hear you right is actually that hasn 't been innovation in the interests of customers and of better services and products it 's been innovation in the way that the financial sector captures rent uh, captures surplus is that is that right That's Am I, absolutely, in my was-
1: absolutely right and an interesting way to put the question is to ask why do we not have anything like M-Pesa in the United Kingdom with this fantastic financial sector? And it's because the innovation has not been innovation to serve customers because actually the forces of competition are rather weak.
0: Right. Uh, a Kenyan friend of mine was in Washington, D.C. recently and was bewildered that he couldn't use his mobile phone for payments. It was, uh, it was really interesting. Um, yeah, no, OK. So that, uh, and you, the other... I don't want to spend a lot of time on the environmental crisis because... Um, I think that's reasonably well documented. But again, what I found interesting all all through your book was was the way you uh, marshal a lot of evidence and try and draw a balanced point of view. Um, On the climate change question, um, I wondered whether you felt that the the response of uh, the rich nations to the impending possibility of climate change is sufficient. I mean, is your reading of the economic evidence about what it would cost and what the the possible benefits are, uh, such that you think this is an area where we're not responding as we should, or do you think that it's broadly right to to wait and see and see what happens and maybe future generations will be richer and smarter and be able to deal with the problems when they emerge?
1: I think we're not responding as we should. I'm sure there will be technological innovations that help us out of what appears to be a pretty horrible trade-off and improve the terms of it, but I don't think we're doing enough Being an economist, I would like to see carbon priced properly. And the carbon markets that we have have always been undermined by governments giving way to the lobbying of large companies that don't want to pay increased costs. I think they're foolish, actually. If you look at the example of um, companies in the 1970s in, in Germany, where they were made to bear the full cost of the oil price shock, and the German authorities, rather than take any risk with higher inflation imposed a recession on the economy. German companies, of course, some of them suffered in terms of lost sales and, and there was unemployment, but they responded by investing in new and better technologies, which over the long term made them much more productive than UK companies where the government policy went went the opposite way. And I think a far-sighted company would see paying more for carbon as a really strong incentive to develop better Productivity in the future.
0: The problems you describe in your book—inequality, uh, the uh, erosion of trust and social capital, the financial crisis, environmental issues—all these apply just as much, if not more, at a global level. And global inequality is much greater than inequality within within any particular nation. Um, your book mainly focuses on national questions but do you think that increasingly we're going to have to address these questions globally as well? And um, am I right to be even more pessimistic about our global prospects uh, than you are about our national prospects for facing up to these challenges?
1: Responding to any of these challenges is bound to have to start with national politics. And it's all the harder than at at the global level. Just think at the moment about the... um, Dynamics between within the EU, between German politics and Italian or greek politics it's it's extremely hard to address any of them globally, I think, and obviously there are areas where that has to happen, and climate change is is a good example. I don't think we've found very good ways of of doing that global politics and so for example, on climate change, there are these enormous conferences a huge amount of effort goes into them and they're talking about targets that are very hard to measure at all and where the data is very out of date and how on earth can you get um, policies with any leverage when that's the kind of target that you're talking about so I, I, it's, it's, a hu- it's a huge other set of problems which is why I didn't go, go into them in the book um, but I don't think we have begun to think about how to do that global politics well
0: I'm talking with Diane Coyle, the author of The Economics of Enough, which is now out in paperback and is available on the Kindle. We've talked about the big challenges. After the break, we're going to look at some of the reasons those challenges haven't been solved.
2: Do you have a topical guest you'd like to see on Development Drums? We're always open to suggestions, so please tell us yours by visiting our Facebook page. You can also find out who we have lined up for development dramas and pose any questions you have for them there.
0: Diane, so far we've talked about the first half of your book, which is about these huge challenges, the environment, the financial system, problems of public finance, erosion of trust and social capital. The middle part of your book then talks about three obstacles which get in the way of addressing them. Now, listeners who don't know your work more generally might be quite surprised by the first of those, uh, which is measurement, uh, our failure to to measure uh, what it is that's going on. Tell us why this... I mean, this sounds a bit tangential and a bit techy. Tell us why you think this is really important.
1: The reason in general that measurement's important is that it's what policymakers respond to, and um, the all the political pressures. I mean, it's a bit of a, a ritual, really, isn't it? Because gross domestic product is this made-up number. Really, it's a metaphor um, for for how the economy is doing. And there's a song and dance about whether it's going up by zero point one or down by minus zero point two. So, in a way, in a way, it's a bit ridiculous. But they're very they're very powerful, and. It's a cliche to say that what you measure determines what you, what you take action on. What we have are a lot of measures that focuses on short-term things, and the real gap is anything that measures long-term things, and in particular, not having any kind of national balance sheet so that we know how much we're taking away from future generations to benefit ourselves currently. And there are sort of sporadic attempts to do this. There's the National Institute here, um, people in the United States have done generational accounts that look at implicit pension burdens and healthcare burdens over the future. The national accounts have satellites, so there's an environmental satellite to the national accounts that gives us some information about um, the use of, of natural resources. Um, but I think we've, we very much need to make that more systematic and have a regular publication and turn it into the same kind of political event that the regular statistics we have um, already are. So I'm
0: sympathetic to the idea that we should measure these things, I mean, just on the grounds that more information must be good. Um, but I wonder whether it's really... I mean, if these things matter to people, if, if it matters to people that, that their you know parks are being um, degraded or their you know traffic congestion is getting worse... Um, and um, even though that's not measured in GDP anywhere and not measured in the national accounts, if people are aware of it, won't that then manifest itself in their voting behaviour and, and political pressure to do something about these things? And why, why do we need to? Why do we need the Office of National Statistics to tell us that we're unhappy about traffic congestion? If 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 people if these things matter to people, won't won't that come through in the political economy of, of, of uh, of how we do, how we make decisions?
1: I don't think it would, because th- you're making a presumption about what people are aware of. and um,
0: I guess I'm saying if they're not aware of them, then it can't matter. It only matters if enough people are aware of it and care about it enough to change their voting behaviour about it.
1: But the thing about official statistics is that they shape awareness. They, they legitimise things that, that we as a society care about. And there's a lot of evidence from... The psychological literature that people don't pay attention to things that change slowly over time right. so if you're living in a place that you've lived for a while and the traffic going by your house is getting worse and worse but a little bit every day you adjust to it and and actually are, are not aware of it the the great example is the air france um, plane that crashed into the pacific a few years ago when they recovered the black box they found that the engine had stalled in the middle of a thunderstorm and the there's a verbal warning to the pilots in the cockpit who were both experienced and it sounded something like 78 times saying, your engines have stalled, restart your engines. But because they had so much information to absorb and lots of things were changing around them, they didn't notice. Attention, attention is... Um, Right. It's it's really hard to focus. And so the point about statistics is that it says this is what we're focusing on. Right. Which is a bit of a tangent, but
0: And how difficult would it be I mean it's, it sounds like, you know, we all know that there are problems with GDP as a measure, you know, There are lots of there's lots of work that happens in the home, for example, people caring uh for others that never gets measured. And presumably part of the reason that never gets, I mean, there are all kinds of power relations about why those things don't get valued as they should. But part of it is just it's very difficult to measure, you know, how much caring is mm-hmm. happening in the home. Um, the last thing we want is government inspectors coming around and seeing how many hours we're spending with our children or our elderly parents. So how this notion that we're going to do a better job of particularly measuring assets, um, measuring our environmental assets, for example... Is this a whole new industry of statisticians and government workers who are going to start collecting this information? Or what What, what do you envisage? How do, how do we make this happen?
1: I would redirect the effort, actually. I think the, um, there's been too much effort put into refining GDP in more and more sophisticated ways. And if you went down the route of valuing uh, unpaid work or, or the other things that people think should be in or out of GDP, that makes it even more complicated And it's pretty complicated already. I would um, go back to basics on GDP and say GDP is a measure of the market output of the economy and uh, gives us an indication of productive capacity and productivity um, and put that effort instead into measuring assets properly.
0: The chapter on values, uh, I thought, which I think is chapter seven of the book, I thought was one of the most interesting chapters and that's saying something because it's a book full of lots of interesting insights and connections but it's a it's a chapter in which you mount a defense of markets the market economy Uh, and you also mount a defense of economists you you i think you you counter some of the common criticisms that economists know, know the price of everything and the value of nothing and all that stuff and you you explain that actually economics is all about some of these ethical and, and value questions, but you come up with this um, interesting idea that, there are, that, that in any society you can have any two of the following three things. You can have economic efficiency, you can have equity, and you can have individual freedom. And your your claim is that you, you know you pick two of those that you want, but if you, once you move in the direction of those two, you'll almost definitely move away from the third. Tell us a bit about about how why you think that's important.
1: We've had, um, I suppose, a generation of concentrating on individual freedom and on efficiency. So it's been all about all about markets. I mean, to caricature it, it's the it's the neoconservative or neoliberal Thatcherite Thatcherite agenda and um, the consequence of that has been the increasing inequality because if you liberalise and deregulate and let everybody look out for themselves then that's that's sort of inevitable consequence Um, but over time and I think we're now seeing this it undermines some of the social norms and some of the trust that makes markets Individualism makes market individualism work properly, and and so you have to find some way. So there's no right answer for all time, is what I'm saying, and it will always be the job of society to tack between those three different legs of the stool, uh, and and make sure that you don't get too far in one kind of direction and build up problems on the third on the third leg. And then there've been other eras when. You would point to the the opposite happening, that you'd had an era of um, uh, greater collectivism, and there's the f- old equity efficiency trade-off that, that anybody who studies economics is is familiar with, that when you determine some of the outcomes that are different from what a market would achieve, then you're going to get some inefficiency linked to that. In a sense, the pre Thatcher period. The pre Thatcher we? period, right? And we- that was fine until it went too far, and then it wasn't fine.
0: Right. So and so and the direction that you think we should now move in, where we've, uh, I think from your last answer, you're saying that we're, we've ignored too much the equity, the kind of social bonds part of our, of, of this trilemma. Mm-hmm. Is that right?
1: I think we've ignored that, and I think we've we can't afford at the moment to ignore the efficiency bit of it. So um, the libertarianism bit of it is the one that we'll have to give.
0: Okay, so in a sense what we're saying i mean in in practice, what you mean is higher levels of individual taxation or why why do we have to um, uh concede something in the in the space of individual freedom to have a, a more social a, a big society why why is there a trade-off between individual freedom and and this more social uh, aspect of of market capitalism?
1: well, it would be the freedoms of the individuals who've been who've been um rigging the markets in their own direction at the moment and so addressing some of those um, so things like saying you can't pay big
0: bonuses for example exactly okay and uh, I mean it seems to me that and we'll come to the the governance issue in a second but actually this is a good segue into it it seems to me that part of the problem is that as people have become more wealthy um, they've also become more politically powerful and so able to lock in a, a rigging of the system in their own favour. Yeah. So they, they are able to prevent competition in markets they're, um, and lock in various kinds of monopoly and, and rent-seeking behaviour. Wealth has okay. been
1: parlayed into political power.
0: Right. And I suppose one of the ways in which we might need to constrain freedom is, is to reduce the freedom of very wealthy people to, uh, to, to use that to acquire political power. Is that, is that consistent with what you so say? I mean, I, I, well, tell me more about this notion of the crisis of governance, that's your third your third crisis.
1: Well, the extremists of executive pay, which started with the banks but actually bled out into the corporate sector, have come about because there has been no restraint. And even the self-restraint that there used to be on what people paid themselves out of corporate profits has, has vanished. So... On the one hand, the the regulation and the absence of competition means that profit margins have increased a lot. And then on the other hand, there's been a quite um, small and cohesive group of of the elite who've um, had a university education, been to business school. They might not all know each other, but they're the same kind of people, and they have been paying themselves that money and set up structures to do it. So this whole panoply of remuneration committees and remuneration consultants is all a fig leaf for channelling the money from the profits from having rigged markets into, into their, own, their own bank accounts and their own yachts and mansions.
0: But there's a, there is a kind of broader theme in your book about this idea that um, the problems that we face, um, things like environmental degradation... Um, are addressable in a kind of technical sense but there's a failure of governance that in it, that enables us as a society to do that that, that 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 our governance structure and it's partly because of the exercise of of the concentration of wealth and therefore power in our political system but i i'm, I'm I mean, most of us think that there's a kind of uh, general progress towards more democratic, more accountable systems. We're seeing right across the world, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, a strong shift to multi-party democracy, peaceful transitions of power for the first time. Um, you know, our sense is that government is getting better, is getting more democratic. And yet in the book you're saying, well, these challenges, these these very real challenges, thinking long-term, thinking about some of the... Thinking about assets as well as income, um, we're not facing up to. So, is government is what's happening? Is government getting worse than it used to be? Why? Why are we? Wh- what is it about governance that's leading us to fail to address these questions?
1: It seems to me it's getting more populist, and so governments are having to respond to particular bandwagons or areas where that kind of pressure builds up. But I find it astounding that there has been so little political response to the financial crisis and and, and restructuring the banking sector. And it has taken years, years of the crisis, to agree to phase in over years more some small changes to the amount of capital that banks will be required to hold. And minor changes about reporting and about about payment
0: structures. So, do you think John Vickers? I mean, you're talking about the Vickers report at this point, right? Do you think he flunked it? I and mean, why did why did Vickers not recommend, you know, a separation of retail banking from casino banking, for example? I mean, what 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 was it about our government system? I mean, yeah, he's a smart guy, right? You know, there are very few people more better qualified than him to do this, and he's probably not in the pocket of a bank. So why didn't he recommend something more radical?
1: I, I haven't talked to him about it, so I couldn't tell you. But my impression is that it was too, they took too technocratic an approach. And when you do that, you think about um, really quite small changes and not, not the big picture. And to think about the big picture and the power of the financial lobbies in our political system, it, you know, that's, for, that's for governments to do, that's for politicians to do. And when, in the u s there are five financial sector lobbyists for every member of Congress, and you need money of the banks to get elected, then you can see why change is difficult but e- but even so, our financial system is vulnerable to another crisis this could you know this this whole run on the banks could happen again tomorrow, and nothing has been done about it. It's simply extraordinary
0: it does seem to me there's a failure of the imagination of the elite right I mean there is an opportunity here to really change the uh, the settlement between our financial sector and the rest of the economy, and you know there's popular opinion is behind doing something about this, and yet somehow no part of our political system has has really articulated what that new settlement would look like and what what it should be, and we seem to be very constrained within, as you say, these technocratic solutions about. Changing the capital adequacy ratios and things, and I, I just think I, so. That suggests that there is something wrong with our governance system. That, that, but that I, that to me sounds like a class problem. It sounds to me like a problem of a, an elite that is, uh, uh, that, that isn't is insufficiently diverse and insufficiently willing to think broadly. Is that, is that part of our problem, or is that, to, Marxist in interpretation?
1: Well. N- It may be. Maybe we'll all end up up being Marxists in our old age.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, uh, In this section about governance failure, you talk a lot about long-term problems and our failure to address them. I I read some of our problems as failures to deal with the collective action problem. That, you know, in something like climate change, it it seems to me that there is quite widespread agreement that we need to do something about this, that we need to take some steps to... Make our industry less carbon intensive and re- and reduce carbon emissions, and that it's the rich world that needs to do that. What we seem to be arguing about is who exactly is going to bear the costs of that. Um, is it going to be industry? Is it going to be consumers? Which countries? Which industries? You know. And it seems to me that it's it's not that we're not thinking long term, or that we don't recognise that there's a problem, or that we, even that we don't have the measurement. It's just that we don't have any mechanism by which somebody can say, right, stop arguing, you're going to do this and you're going to do this and that's, that's going to get us there. Um, I mean, I like the idea of a, of a carbon price as a way to, uh, to give people incentives to, to do this. But I'm wondering whether you understate in your section on governance the idea that we just don't have good enough mechanisms for, um, f- for solving these collective action problems.
1: I think that's a fair point I think that's a fair point and the um, example a while ago about um, not having a good target for these international climate negotiations because it's hard to measure and it's retrospective actually speaks to the kind of collective action problem that you're talking about you need to think about it more in game theoretic terms and what's the focal point of the game and what how are you aligning people's incentives so i think that's a fair comment
0: you also have uh, a, a, again another theme running through the book is is the role of technology the way that technology has changed uh, the economic structure of the economy that we we're consuming more weightless but you have an earlier book about weight, the weightless economy um but also about the notion that technology might change the way we do governance that that, that it's more possible to consult the public more often and engage people and and for institutions to become more accountable. Tell us about, I mean, how big a thing, is this a fad or is this this really going to change the way we do governance and the way we do economics?
1: I think it will really change, but I wouldn't want to be too starry-eyed about um, engaging large numbers of Ordinary people in these sorts of decisions, because most people aren't very interested. Right. And anybody who does public consultations will find that actually the number um, is who who want to be bothered to respond to a questionnaire and still less think about it is 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 pretty small. But it, I think it will work through there being um, the potential for the few people who are interested to act as new intermediaries and access. The massive amounts of data that are now available and the tools for analyzing that and the potential to get at at all the documents and they will that will then filter out from from there so i suppose in a way that um traditionally in the old world the old technology world newspapers acted as that kind of that kind of filter there'll be some new mediation mechanism i don't know exactly what it will look like but i'm confident it will happen
0: do you, you used to work at a newspaper as I recall. Um, do you think that the shift from the old organised media of newspapers and broadcast um, towards much more crowdsourced online citizen journalism I mean that comes with some risks right And because uh, are we managing those risks well?
1: We're probably at the point of maximum disorganisation aren't we? Um, right. When it's not yet completely clear how you authenticate validate all of that kind of information and it does take a lot of effort to to validate it properly
0: yeah i mean i uh, my instinct is that is that the crowd rather than an editor or a a desk of subs are going to do a better job of validating things
1: but the crowd in a structured way
0: yes and i'm not sure that we yet have that we don't have the structure we don't have that you're listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Bader, and my guest, Diane Coyle. Coming up in the last section, we're going to look at Diane's Manifesto of Enough.
2: If you're interested in development policy issues, visit the Centre for Global Development in Europe's webpage and sign up for our weekly Development Digest, a concise and up to date roundup of important and diverse European policy news.
0: Dan, the last section of your book sets out what you describe as a manifesto for tackling these problems. What are your main recommendations?
1: I think a manifesto is um, a slightly grandiose title for um, the, for the need to try and be a little bit positive after some some quite challenging analysis. And it divides into three areas. One is one is about measurement, which we we talked about in an earlier section. And although that always seems really boring, I think it's quite important. Another is looking at institutions and what kind of economic and social institutions do we have and what scope is there for innovation. And then the the third is is, um, something that economists have not often talked about, and that's, that's values and the morality, the morality of capitalism, and engaging in that kind of debate in a way that we haven't for a generation.
0: On institutions, it's easy to say that our institutions are failing and there are obvious things that we might want to do like, for example, limit the role of money in politics and clearly that's a much more pressing need in America than it is in the UK but it's perhaps a need in both Mm. now. But that's quite hard to do, right? I mean, you know, these these institutions are there uh, entrenching the power of various elites. How how do you envisage we bring about change in institutions of the kind you envisage?
1: Well, I think it's always worth trying to reform existing institutions. It would be well worthwhile trying to have some corporate governance reform so that the structure of um, corporate boards and uh, bank boards is changed and those um, remuneration committees go and the investors actually have a say over um, what the, what the um, boards of directors do. So r- incremental reform is worth having a go at, but as you say, it's very hard, and people quite quickly get bogged down in details that actually wouldn't make much difference one way or the other.
0: Because right. h- we've seen with Vickers, actually. Oh, yes, right. uh, it's a very right. good example of it.
1: But I'm very interested in the scope the technologies themselves bring for much more radical social as well as economic innovation. And again, the parallel would be with with Victorian times. the problems called forth the kind of institutions that were needed in a self organizing way and mutuals and cooperatives and trade unions were people organizing themselves to do things that would make their lives better and I think we see we see a little bit of that now with new technologies um and including in in the financial sector, all kinds of new start ups and uh, peer-to-peer lending and, and crowd-sourced funding, and so on, which are really small scale, and some of them won't work, but some of them might, and that's the kind of area where I'd be much more optimistic, really, about getting institutional reform.
0: And in your in your part about being clear about values and morals in economics, again, how uh, you know, ob- who could be against having a more morals or values-driven economics but w- what does that mean in pro- who should do what to make that happen
1: um, I think a lot of it is um, what's the phrase for it it's it's the symbolism it's the statements that political and business leaders make and that could be quite powerful and change the way the businesses operate A good corporate example is is Paul Pullman at Unilever whom everybody talks about because he's quite rare. Yeah but but he he does make a difference in the kind of statement that he makes and the way that the company does business and you know like any big corporation you'll find things that they do that you don't like but i think they they do good business in all senses of the world and he's not embarrassed to to use his position and and the symbolism of his position to just talk about it people move um from one moral universe into another surprisingly surprisingly quickly depending under peer pressure around them? Uh,
0: my expectation is that companies will do this on a lot. I mean, I think Paul Polman's a, a good example of someone who is ahead of this curve. And Andrew Whitty at GSK is another example. But it does seem to me that in the end this will come about when companies believe that it's what their consumers want, or at least other among their key, key stakeholders. So perhaps consumers, perhaps, sta- perhaps shareholders, um, perhaps employees. That they will there will come a tipping point where they think we can't just be hard nosed profit maximizing cost minimizing people we have to demonstrate that we have certain kinds of values because otherwise our customers will go somewhere else um and yet surprisingly consumer you know there is a group of middle class consumers who care about these things and buy fair trade and um do all those things but there are a hell of a lot of people who can't afford that, right, who just want to buy, who, who have to buy the cheapest food available or the cheapest products available. Uh, do you think that in the you know, is this just a call for us as well-heeled metropolitan middle-class people that we don't want to see our firms being as economically efficient as they can be, putting up the price to a lot of people for whom that's, you know, the cost of of. Uh, doing more moral business will be quite serious uh, you know they, by they aren't choosing to buy fair trade because they can't afford it so what business have we telling them that that is what they want
1: oh well I'm absolutely not in the business of of telling people they have to pay more for business to be able to do good and um i would I would start in different places actually I would start with um um I mean, the, the thing about tipping points is that it looks like nothing's changing, and then it changes very quickly. And this business about maximising total shareholder return, but brackets siphoning a lot of that off to the executives, that's really quite recent, and it came about quite quickly, and it came about because of politics. And so the politics could actually change it quite quickly. And I would start there, and I would start with legal and regulatory changes, and I would tax bonuses to smithereens, and and start changing the climate there long before I went to asking consumers on low incomes to pay more for fair trade
0: goods would, would you make changes to the legal re- fiduciary responsibilities of companies I mean there is technically a legal requirement to maximize shareholder value isn't there I mean should should that change would, is, would that be part Well, the
1: interpretation come? of it has changed right and I think it should change back it should change back or if if it looks like the law constrains changing back then the law needs to be changed on that because I do believe that um, companies doing business with a purpose of a purpose that's not maximising profit and, and total return will actually do better in the long term anyway. And that investors that invest in those sorts of companies will do better for, for their pensioners or whatever in the long term too.
0: I want to challenge you a bit on what I see as a mismatch between what I found a very compelling narrative of the challenges we face. Um, the environmental challenges, the the problems of social fabric of trust and social capital, the um, the problems that we face as changing demographics in society and, and the impact on the public sector, uh, the financial crisis. All these seem to me very real and compelling and difficult. And you um, identify these three obstacles uh, to uh, uh, that get in the way of doing something about them: the failure of measurement. Um, a failure of governance and a failure of values. The manifesto then doesn't seem to me to be up to the task of fixing these problems. No. Um, so, what, should I should I uh, ha- have finished the book as I did, a bit pessimistic and a bit gloomy?
1: Well, I myself vary between pessimism and optimism. Um, I, I, the manifesto doesn't answer all the challenges. I think that's absolutely right. And I think it's partly because responding to any of these challenges isn't simple and there isn't a list of ten bullet points, actually, that you can give to fix any of them. And because it's a book, I tried to give ten bullet points, so it doesn't work. Tackling any one of these requires a lot of detail and we've just kind of skated over some of them, but talking about fiduciary duty and remuneration consultants and corporate governance structures as soon as you start down there there's a lot of detail there and then when you're looking at at it across the whole waterfront you don't need 10 bullet points you need probably ten thousand bullet points of actions to take i think this is a big a big a big scale job a long job Uh, that's probably pessimistic isn't it it
0: it is (laughs) but it's it's also realistic and i just as, if I may, just ask you for um, a thought about how this works out on an international scale, because, again, many of these challenges are uh, global in nature, and you know if it's difficult to change company law in the UK, where we have a reasonably well-functioning parliament. How difficult is it to change some of the problems, for example, of uh, the way the international financial system works? Where we don't have an effective executive at global level or an effective legislature at global level that can make those kinds of rule changes, how do we, do you have any, you know, are there parts of this story where you think it's most promising to make progress at an international level?
1: I think there is hope in. The way attitudes are changing around the world. I mean, the intellectual climate is a global intellectual climate, and I think that is changing and has changed quite dramatically. And so, there's a prospect of people in lots of different countries having exactly these these kinds of thoughts. Um, but the practical politics of implementing it in international institutions, I think, is really tough, and particularly in the financial markets, it may come to a choice between working around what you might perceive as a problem in the American financial markets and and cutting yourself off from it. I mean, there might come a point when there's a choice to be made there.
0: I would add one note of optimism, which is your tipping point, point, which is that I do think that all these problems... I, I look back to the history of the abolition of slavery, and it must have seemed impossible to imagine a world in which we got rid of slavery when they sat around in the East End of London and plotted the abolitionist campaign. But actually, you know, these are, uh, it's amazing how ideas do spread and take off and tip. Yes. And people are willing to make... And, and what's inspiring about, I think, your description of uh, moving back to a world driven by values and markets is the idea that this is actually what people want. People regret the loss uh, of some of these values and the social fabric and the trust, because that's part of what makes it worthwhile living as a human being. So I think that this could quite quick. I think as we begin to identify solutions, it could quite quickly gather momentum. So I think that's I grounds so. for optimism.
1: I have been amazed going around the world talking about the book at the amount of interest and the range of people who are interested in in, in this. When it's a book about you know GDP and measuring happiness. <laughs>
0: You've been listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Barda, and my guest today has been Diane Coyle, who is the author of The Economics of Enough, which is now out in paperback. Diane, thanks very much Thank for coming on Development Drums. Thank you.
2: Thanks for downloading episode 34 of Development Drums with Diane Coyle. Join us next time, where we're joined by CGD's senior fellow and expert in migration, Michael Clements, to discuss his work on migration and development.